Mountain View Church um, began 10 years ago, but it, it didn't really begin 10 years ago. See, we're a part of something much bigger than just um, this little place on this little spot on the map. We're a part of something so much bigger than that. Um, if you got the teaching guide, I want to just, as you turn to the book of Acts, I want to talk through this right at the beginning. Here's the thing. The church is not a building to see. I think we talk like that a lot. We talk like that the, the church is a building. Oh, look at that church over there. That one's got a big steeple. Look at, oh, there. I go to that church, you know, down on the corner of whatever. But the church is not a building to see. It's not a place to sit <clears throat> or an event to attend. So this thing that we're doing this morning, you know, we talk about it like that. Well, you know, where do you go to church? Or did you go to church today? Did you go to the event, the gathering? The, the, and that's part of it, but that's not holistic of what the church is. The church is actually a movement to join. And so what I want us to do today is just kind of talk. We've been looking over the last 10 years, and I want to talk a little bit about how this thing really began. So 10 years ago, Mountain View was birthed, but Mountain View is part of something much bigger. It's part of a movement that the Spirit of God started all the way back in the book of Acts. The church is a movement of ordinary people empowered to be witnesses to the grace of Jesus Christ to multiply disciples of all nations. That's sort of an overarching statement of what's going on here. Um, I want to read uh, some scripture, and if you don't mind, as, as we do here, I'd like for you to stand with me in honor of God's Word. And we're going to read a, a chunk. I'm gonna, we're going to abbreviate just a little bit, but I'm going to read a chunk of scripture together. So the book of Acts chapter 1, <clears throat> beginning in verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach, until the day when He was taken up, after he'd given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, he presented himself alive to them after his sufferings by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or seasons that the father has fixed by his own authority. Verse eight is really important. But you will receive power. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. When he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. 
And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, the zealot, Judas, the son of James. All these with one accord, get this, were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. And in those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was about 120 people. And he said, let's pause. So the next bit of the chapter, he's going to say, hey, guys, Judas is no longer with us. The scriptures told us what was going to happen about Judas. But the scriptures also say that we should replace him. And so they went through a process of replacing Judas. They chose Matthias to be one of the 12 apostles. And then we pick up in chapter 2. Verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived. So just to be clear. uh, Pentecost means 50 days after. So Passover. Jesus had the Passover meal. And then Pentecost is 50 days later. So that gives you an idea of the timeline between Jesus' crucifixion and death. And now what's about to happen 50 days later. So just over seven weeks, not quite two months later. Here we are. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Just so we see, as the church is being born, God has His eyes on the nations. Under Every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together. And they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it then that when we hear each of us in, our, in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and the visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others were mocking and they said, they must be filled with new wine. They're saying they're drunk, right? So Peter, he stands up with the 11 and lifts up his voice. So this is the first sermon of the first church ever. And his goal is to address the drunkenness, right? So he says, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. Here's the first words of the first Christian sermon. These people aren't drunk. It's a good way to start the church, right? These people aren't drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. And then he goes on preaching a powerful sermon where he references the Old Testament scriptures to talk about God is bringing about what he has promised. And then it all comes down. Go to verse 36. Chapter 2, verse 36. So Peter says, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, the crowd, 
they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children, and listen, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized. And look at this. And there were added that day about how many? Three thousand souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and what? And prayer. Let's do that now. Father. We love reading the story of the beginnings of the church. We recognize today that the church is not a building that we point to and say, look at that church. It's not the church. The church is not a place we come and sit. The church is certainly not an event that we come and are entertained. God, the church is the body of Christ on the move. We are a movement that began with the coming of the Holy Spirit. And Lord... Is moving right through us. We're thankful for 10 years. And we are excited about the future. We praise you, Jesus. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. The church is a movement. One of the things we read in this text as we continue to read through the book of Acts, is that these are not special people. This is not Luke's first book. You know, he wrote the Gospel of Luke to Theophilus, and this is his second book he's writing to the same guy. And he's explaining the story. He's telling uh, about the story of of how Jesus Christ was killed and rose from the dead, and, and now the church is being born. And so he's explaining all of the story. And what we find out is that these guys that are named and the ladies that are gathered together, there's nothing special about them. There's really not. This movement began with a group of ordinary people. The church is a movement of ordinary people. This ought to be incredibly encouraging to us, right? Look around. There's not a one of us that's like superstar special. I mean, I love what Matt said. He was like, if, if you knew me, and some of you do, you'd know that it's ridiculous that God used me to do this. And I love that because it shows how ridiculous God's grace is. None of us are superstars. Only Jesus. That's the beauty of this movement we're a part of is that none of us get to go, look at what we did. Look at what I did. We all have to point and go, I don't know how, but he did it. So the church is a movement of ordinary people. You know, in Acts chapter 3 and chapter 4, there's a story of Peter and John healing a lame man. And then they they get in trouble because they're kind of stirring up a commotion because they said these words. We've healed him in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Well, that got them in a lot of trouble. So they stood before the council, the Sanhedrin and all that, and they said, tell us by what authority and on whose name and in what power that you're doing these things. And they stood before him and said, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Boldness, right? And the Bible says in Acts chapter 3, verse 13, I love it. It says this. Um, 
Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. This movement that you're a part of is a movement of ordinary people. Praise God, because that's us, right? We get to be a part of an an extraordinary thing, but we're ordinary people. One other thing I notice about these ordinary people is that they are desperate and dependent. You read Acts 1.14 and you see that the first thing they do, Jesus has told them, I want you to stay here until the Spirit of God comes. And they go to the upper room and they devote themselves to what? Prayer. I love Matt's exhortation to us. If I had to do it over again, I would say we need to pray more. I love that. Church, let's heed that. Let's heed that. Let's look at the text of Scripture and see what the first church does. They've just heard Jesus Christ say, you're going to receive power to be my witnesses when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you're going to go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. In that moment, these ordinary people realize they desperately need God. If we're going to do this mission, we desperately need God. Let me flesh it out for you a little bit. These are disciples of Jesus Christ. And he says, the first place I want you to start is in Jerusalem. What had just happened seven weeks earlier in Jerusalem? Jesus Christ was killed. Guys, I want you to stand up and boldly proclaim that Jesus Christ is alive and will rescue and forgive you of your sins right here in the city that they crucified me for that very same message. These ordinary men and women, they knew they needed God to do this. Well, outside of Jerusalem, what's next? Judea. Judea is a place where everyone hated Christians. It's the broader surrounded. They hated this new movement that was going on. So Jesus is saying, I want you to make disciples of the people that hate you. Those people that hate you right now, those are the ones I want you to. Eventually, you're going to grow to that level. I want you to make disciples of those people. And then Samaria. Believe it or not, these are the people that actually the disciples hated. We don't like Samaritans. And Jesus says, yeah, I want you to make disciples here in Jerusalem where they killed me. And then right here in Judea where they hate you. And then in Samaria where you hate them. And then to the ends of the earth where you don't have a clue where I'm taking you. So these people realize they're ordinary people who need, desperately need God. And if we church are going to be a part of this kind of movement, we need to be a praying people who are desperately devoted our God. We just recently set up this little prayer station and a couple of, um, about a week and a half ago, I was here at the office and just taking, doing some things and the Lord was just like, hey, I want you to pray. Just came in here, lights are all off, turn on that little lamp and just spent a few hours there. And that's not like me, y'all. I don't want you to think I'm some superstar. I don't pray for hours. The Lord was so near And I walked away from that and I certainly didn't say, what a waste of time. I walked away from that moment like, wow, if I could do that all day. And this question came to me while I was on my knees there. 
If God does today only what I ask Him to do, what will God do today? If God does today only what you ask Him to do, what will God do? Are you a praying person? If you're not, then you don't know you're ordinary. You think a little too highly of yourself. And we should get a grip on the fact that we are a movement of ordinary people who desperately need God. Amen? Amen. Two, we are a movement of extraordinary power. I love what Jesus said to His disciples. Right at the beginning, Acts 1.8, He says, You will receive power. Dunamis, this explosive, is where we get our word for dynamite. You're going to receive power. Power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And here's why you need power. It's not to have a good day. It's to be His witnesses. Let's make sure we connect the dots of why He's given us the Holy Spirit. He's given us the Holy Spirit to empower a bold witness. It's the power to witness. And I want to tell you about the power to obey. This may take just a minute, but I want you to follow me. I told you a minute ago, our timeline, it's important. Passover happened. Jesus had the last supper with his, with his guys. They're gathered around the table. And he says, how I have longed to have this meal with you. I have just, this is where everything changes, boys. This bread is no longer a representation of a lamb that set you free from, from Egypt. This bread is now my body. Because my body's going to set you free from your sin. And this cup is no longer the blood of a, of a little lamb that you cut and put the blood over the doorpost so that the death angel would pass over and you'd eventually be set free from Egypt and cross the Red Sea. It's no longer a memorial just to that. It's deeper. It's my blood which has been shed for you. And if it covers you, you are rescued and redeemed. This is a major moment that just two months before this moment that we're reading happened. And then at this moment, at, at, at the Pentecost, we have a, a whole other thing happening. The Spirit of God comes. And many people get lit up literally with little tongues of fire. I don't have a clue, Gary, what that looked like, but I imagine it was amazing. Tongues of fire. People are speaking crazy languages. And God does miraculous things. That day, they went from 120 people in one day, one sermon. This church planted and they baptized 3,000 people. I want to connect some dots for you. Passover and Pentecost have happened all the way back, from all the way back to Exodus. And the very first Passover, I described it for you, it's the, the, the body of the lamb that was broken and the blood that was put over the, over the um, doorposts, right? That's the first Passover. Pentecost happened 50 days after. And it was when Moses went up on Mount Sinai and got the Ten Commandments from God. It was when God met with Moses on the mountain and received from God the Ten Commandments, the law. I want you to grab your Bibles for a minute. Go with me to Exodus chapter 32. 
I want you to see a beautiful connection of what's happening here with what happened there. In Exodus 31, at the end of the chapter, the Lord gives His Ten Commandments. He's finishing it up. Um, And if you look in verse 18, And He gave to Moses, when He had finished speaking with with Him on Mount Sinai, two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone, written with the finger of God. See, before I wanted to read a section of this before that, where the Lord. Now, here it is. I want you to flip over and see in this moment in chapter 32. When Moses comes down from uh, Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments, do you remember what he found there? When he came down, he found the people of God dancing and singing around a golden calf. Isn't it crazy that the prophet of God went up on the mountain to receive a word from God? And he was only gone those 40 days. And when he comes back down with the tablets that God has written with his finger, the people of God are dancing around an idol that they've created. And while Moses is on the mountain, you can read this in those chapters, while he's on the mountain... It's trembling. It's shaking. There's a great fire that has descended on the mountain. There's smoke all around. God actually tells Moses, I want you to go down and tell the people, don't come near and touch the mountain. If they do, they'll die. Moses actually goes down and tells them, hey, you guys need to stay away. God's up there. If you come too close, you'll die. He goes back up into the fiery smoke and there's an earthquake. Things are shaking. Meanwhile, down at the foot of the mountain, everybody's making a... A golden calf, and they're worshiping an idol. The law was given at Pentecost when it was original. Look at what happens. Go to Exodus 32, verse 25. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your on your side, each of you, and go to and fro in the gate to, uh, to gate throughout the camp. And each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. That's crazy. And look at this. And the sons of Levi, that's the priests, they did according to the word of Moses. And look at this. And that day about how many? 3,000 men of the people fell. This is a wild phenomenon, isn't it? The very first Pentecost is the giving of the law. And what do we find at the giving of the law is that the people of God are unable to keep it. And after the giving of the law, we see the judgment of God. The judgment of God. Immediately, 3,000 people are put to death because they did not honor God. Now the picture and the reason I'm drawing this connection is because this is Pentecost and what we're looking at is Pentecost. And what's happening in this moment is God descends on a mountain in fire and smoke and wind and an earthquake. And in the moment we're looking at, we have God descending in tongues of fire on the heads of all these people. It's crazy. 
rushing wind coming in the room. The Holy Spirit of God comes into people and a message is proclaimed of repentance and forgiveness in Jesus Christ. And how many people trust in Jesus? 3,000 people. And what we see is that where the law brings death, the Spirit of God brings life. Amen? Amen? And we are meant to be a spirit people empowered by the Spirit of God with the message of God that brings life to people. The Spirit gives us the power to obey. I love what Ezekiel says. It says that He'll take out our heart of stone and put into us a heart of flesh and that He will cause us to walk in obedience. Do you know why you obey God? Because He's enabled it. He's enabled it. We have a movement of extraordinary power. Thirdly, this movement that we're a part of is to multiply disciples of all the nations. To multiply disciples of all the nations. I love that the scriptures say right at the beginning of the book of Acts. um, Jesus says in Acts 1.8, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This is the reason why we go to Haiti and we spend money and we support Gary and his mission in Haiti. This is the reason why we send money every month to Chris Todd in Lebanon. And we've sent teams even this year to go and help share the gospel among um, Syrian people groups and other people groups in Lebanon. Because the mission of God is to multiply disciples among all the nations, not just not just us, not just our people group, not just people of one ethnicity. Race or creed or color. No, this needs to be a mosaic of peoples. Why? Because that's the picture we're driving this movement toward. That's what God is doing. I don't know if you see it here, but in Genesis chapter 11, I don't know if you're familiar with the story, but the people of God built a tower to try to make their way to God. It was called the Tower of Babel. Somebody's been to VBS, right? So it's called the Tower of Babel. And the reason they called it that is because it was there that God looked down and was like, oh man, look at them. What are they doing? (laughs) I'm sure you didn't say that. But that's where he said, "Mm, this ain't going to work. People don't make their way to God. God comes to people. And this is where God looked down and he said, I tell you what, we're going to confuse their languages. We're going to scatter them over the face of the earth. And so that day... At the Tower of Babel, God confused all the languages and made everything a mess. Well, look at what he's doing now. In Acts chapter 2, we have what God did, the disruption that God caused in Genesis 11 is brought and made whole in Acts chapter 2. All the nations and the peoples and the languages have gathered in one place and God makes it where His message is proclaimed and every one from every little nation is able to hear it in their own language and they're astonished by this miraculous thing. Then let's don't miss it. It's because we're to be a movement that makes disciples of all the nations. And the day is coming when we will gather around the throne in glory. And there will be people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation on the planet who recognize that Jesus Christ is King. Amen? That day is coming. So at this point, we need to set our sights 
clearly on the target of where we're headed as a movement. And let's be a people who don't want to look like one color or one nationality. I would love it if we had the problem of trying to figure out how to get how to get this message in Spanish because we have 30 uh, people who speak Spanish or Korean or whatever it may be. I would love that if we had such a diversity gathering here that we had to really brainstorm of how we could effectively make sure the gospel is clear. Because that's where it's going. Every nation under heaven is what Acts 2, 5 says. Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, Jesus said, Go therefore make disciples of all nations. Right? Those were his last words before he ascended into heaven. And I think we would do well, church, if we make his last words our first priority. We need to make Jesus' last words our first priority. But here's what that looks like. It looks like knowing this mission is too great for us because we're ordinary people. So we need to be on our knees a lot. It looks like we can't do that. So we need to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. We need to be begging Him to empower us to be witnesses. And it looks like we need to have our sights set on the people right around us, our neighbors and the nations to love them with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want to make a statement. I want to end here. I've gone way over my 15 minutes. Barry, you called it. Um, Here's a statement. God wants to do more. Do you believe me? God wants to do more. I want you to say that. Will you help me out? Fill in the blank. God wants to do more. One more time. God wants to do more. He does. In Ephesians 3, we have this beautiful passage about how God is going to make His glory known through the church. And then it ends, Ephesians 3.20 ends with this. Now to Him who is able to do far more. Again, now to Him who is able to do far abundantly than we can ever ask or think according to the power at work within us. To Him be glory in the church. Do you see that? To Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. Not just for 10 years, not for 10 more, but for all generations forever and ever. Amen. Now to Him who is able to do more. Yes. This is what Jesus has called us to. He's called us to take up the mantle. This is our our season. This is your time. If you're a part of this body, this is your time to take up the torch and run with endurance the race that God has given us. For the sake of His glory among all nations. We are an ordinary people of extraordinary power called to multiply disciples of all nations. Let's pray. Let's stand and pray together. And we're going to worship. And Jesus, thank you for calling us to a great mission. You called us to a great mission. You've equipped us and empowered us to do it. God, we come today so thankful I'm so thankful for the men and women in this church who have 
tilled the soil and made this church a, and given this church a culture of thinking and looking outward. We're not trying to build big buildings. We're not trying to make a mega church. We're trying to make the name of Jesus known and glorified among the nations. 